And welcome to Season 3, Episode 3 of Logicast, the AWS news podcast brought to you by Logicata. I'm Carl Robinson, CEO and co-founder of Logicata, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, lead cloud engineer, John Goodall. How are you doing today, John? I'm struggling with my heating. I'm struggling. Mm. It's, it's very cold it's, here in the UK. It is. It was mm. like minus four when I did the school run this morning, which was minus four in Celsius, um, which is cold. Mm-hmm. So are you struggling because you're too tight to leave it on for any extended period of time? Or? <laughs> I just can't get the settings right. I've got a thermostatic plug in the corner and it gets too hot and then it gets too cold very quickly and then it turns back on again. I just can't get it comfy. I think you need to write a, a, an app for that by the sound of things. <laughs> I need to adjust the, the setting on the thermostatic plug is what I need yeah. to do. Fine, very finely, very finely. Uh, anyway, uh, we're not here to talk about your your heating issues. Uh, we are also joined today by a very special guest, serverless hero, Alan Helton. Uh, Alan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Happy to be here. How are you guys? Good. I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Good. Despite the fact it was my 50th birthday yesterday. Now I'm not going to go on about it. It was also John's birthday at the weekend but uh, of course not my 50th <laughs> <laughs> happy but, birthday uh, guys yeah thank you thank you it's great you can get it like all of our colleagues you can two for one on the birthdays one greeting lands for for both of us at the same time so uh, yeah but uh, alan tell us a bit about yourself uh, where are you joining us from and what do you do for a living yeah, so I am joining you out of Dallas, Texas. It is also unseasonably cold here. Uh, it was nine degrees this morning, Fahrenheit. Uh, I don't know Ooh. what that is in Celsius, but it cold. is bitter cold, bitter cold. Yes, uh, I'm a, I'm an ecosystem engineer at Momento, and essentially what that means is I do a lot of developer advocacy work. It's a cool, it's a fun way to say developer advocate, but I also do product design and uh, solutions architecture as well. So I've been in the tech industry. You're not hiring, are you? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've been, been in the tech industry for about 12 years. Uh, I have held the majority of the positions that you can hold on the software engineering side. I was a dev, a tech lead, uh, an engineering manager, and, and a uh, enterprise architect as well before I moved into this role here at Momento. Nice. And you're also an AWS serverless hero. So tell us a little bit about that. I know you're perhaps a little bit shy about it, but you know, it's an AWS news podcast. So I'm sure our listeners will love to hear. <laughs> Definitely not shy about it. I mean, that's, uh, that's how you get to be, <laughs> be one anyway. Uh, so uh, serverless hero, that really, that whole journey started when I was at my old job and I was asked to lead a couple of uh, teams into the cloud. Uh, we had traditionally been an on-prem.net SQL server shop and they wanted to modernize. And they said, Alan, take a team of engineers and go figure out the cloud. And like, that's actually very much how they said it. Uh, so I took like a year of R&D, did a lot of research, learned multi-tenancy, NoSQL, uh, a lot of serverless, and tried to find stuff online that addressed my specific questions that I had, You know, just going from one mindset to a complete mindset change. I didn't find it. Uh, pretty much ever. I mean, every now and then I would, but uh, a lot of times I didn't find anything. So I started writing about it. I started, I started my own blog called Ready, Set, Cloud and started just documenting my journey. Uh, all, all of it, really. Uh, I would write internal documentation for my private or for my company, and then I would turn around and do a public-facing version of it pretty much immediately and publish that. Uh, and people liked it. People you know, are also following that journey. 
and the blog turned into a newsletter. The newsletter turned into a podcast as well. And you know, AWS saw that and, and picked it up and nominated me as a serverless hero, which is super, super nice of them. I just feel like some guy over here slinging code behind a, behind a monitor at times. Nice. Well, it's a great achievement, Alan. So uh, well done uh, for the contributions you've made to the community and long may it continue. Um, I've never been to Dallas, uh, but I did used to watch Dallas on TV in the 80s. And for some reason, my wife and I were having a conversation about Dallas recently. And I ended up going down a bit of a rabbit hole on Google about how much uh, Patrick Duffy made out of being in Dallas. And uh, it turns out he was on $75,000 an episode uh, when they were recording Dallas back in the 80s, which was a lot of money. And and uh, I can't remember what the total number of episodes was, but it was a lot. And uh, I think she was wondering why he's not on TV much anymore. And I said, I, I really don't think he needs to be. Uh, but uh, anyway, <laughs> we're not here to talk about uh, bad 1980s uh, American dramas. We are here to talk about AWS news. Um, and those of you who've listened to the podcast before will know that every week I collate a list of AWS news in my weekly AWS News Roundup newsletter. And then John and I pick a subset of the articles from the newsletter that we'd like to talk about with our guests in more detail. So, of course, we have such a selection. And first up this week, there is an article on Medium. And I must apologize, of course, to both John, Alan, uh, and anyone else who tried to open this article and is not a Medium subscriber because I didn't realize this was a paywalled article. I generally try not to share paywalled articles in my newsletter and assume that people uh, have a paid account to read them. Uh, but uh, no matter, we've managed to read the uh, first couple of paragraphs and we can have a conversation about it um, because this article is all about container orchestration, AWS ECS, Elastic Container Service, versus AWS EKS, Elastic Kubernetes Service choosing the right path for your workload. So I'm not sure if we've talked about this on the podcast before, John, but I've seen blog posts about the past. If we trawl through the archives of the Logicata blog, you'll find uh, some posts on ECS versus EKS. Uh, but maybe let's start with a couple of definitions, as we like to do, uh, about what those different services do. You just did, to be honest. Um, <laughs> so... Yeah, I, yeah. That's your whole career, isn't it? Just knowing the acronyms. Yeah, I did the acronyms, didn't I? Yeah, yeah. But I'm not sure that's quite a definition. So it's pretty uh, close. Yeah. It's pretty close. Yeah. So um, <laughs> ECS, Elastic Container Service, AWS's answer to effectively Docker Swarm is kind of the view I've always taken on it. It's uh, a way of managing containers across loads of different servers if you need to. It can run loads of different uh, services, as they call them, or tasks, I think they call them as well. Um, and it's just a way of running your containerized workloads without having to really understand the fundamentals of running something like Docker Swarm or Kubernetes or, or whatever. You, you have containers, you want them to run. That's what ECS is for. Great. EKS is uh, managed Kubernetes, which... Um, it, it is what it says on the tin. It runs Kubernetes for you. Uh, they look after all of the control plane stuff, which is arguably the hard bit because rolling your own control plane, if ever you've done Kubernetes the hard way, don't save yourself the time. It's horrible. Um, and, you know, have rolled your own clusters and things. The control plane is nasty and it's it's tricky to kind of understand and get right. And they'll manage all of that for you for a fee. I think the latest is 10 cents an hour or something. So it's not horrific. Um, but yeah, that's managed Kubernetes. Difference between the two, don't use Kubernetes. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you have to. 
I suppose this is a bit like a VMware Cloud on AWS, right? If you're so heavily invested in VMware, <laughs> that's the only reason to use VMware Cloud on AWS. And the same thing with Kubernetes. Perhaps if you're migrating a uh, Kubernetes cluster from on-prem to the cloud, then it makes sense to use uh, EKS, particularly if you've got a lot of integrations with other third-party tools and that kind of thing. But I guess if you're starting from scratch, are you saying, therefore, you would recommend ECS if you're starting from scratch? Or is it Realistically. Um, but there's a little bit more to it than that. You're not wrong that if you're already very in bed with Kubernetes in one way or another, EKS is kind of what you need to use. Um, there are slight flavor differences. If you look at EKS versus um, Azure's version AKS or GKE, there's slight flavor differences because in the manifest files, you can do cool things like specifying load balancers to talk to your various endpoints and that kind of thing. So there's slight flavor differences. But realistically, if you're already in bed with Kubernetes, you have to use EKS because otherwise you're on this enormous um, migration project rather than just a, let's run Kubernetes over here instead. If you're coming at it from scratch, I would not recommend it unless you are certified and very familiar with Kubernetes and like using Kubernetes, in which case I have a therapist I'd like you to talk to. <laughs> what are your thoughts on, on this one, Alan? I know it's not your specific field of expertise, but do you have anything to add? Yeah, uh, yes and no, yes and no. Uh, so when I graduated college, I have a, a degree in software engineering with a focus in networking. And every day that I don't use anything networking related, I'm a happy guy. Uh, <laughs> it, it's hard stuff and it, it is complex. And in this day and age, honestly, it, it almost isn't worth it in a lot of, in a lot of cases. Uh, so John, I completely agree with you in, in the sense that if you don't already use it, there's probably not a need because it's managed for you in a lot of different other environments. Like uh, I don't, uh, I don't see a lot of new builds pragmatically using it. Uh, really, I would focus on primarily lift and shifts or getting from on-prem into the cloud. The only slightly. Um... I can't think of the word uh, contentious thing then. Are containers on Fargate serverless? Fargate, yes, I would consider that. Yes, I mean a container itself is not a uh, a non-serverless thing. You can you can absolutely do that, and you know Lambda supports containers as well. So it's not. They, I, I don't view that as a non as a yeah, I guess a non-serverless construct, if you will. Yeah, it's it's is is ECS serverless sort of. <laughs> Like it's not inherently is EKS serverless. Ah, ooh, you have to pay for it to exist. Yeah, because <laughs> you're paying for the control plane. So arguably, even though you don't see the servers, it I would call it not. But ECS, yeah. you don't have to pay for it to exist. No, which is again a nice kind of point in its favour. It's you pay for the resources that it uses. So if it's using EC2 you pay for the EC2s. If it's using Fargate, you pay for the compute time, but you don't pay for the management. With EKS, you do. And is there a point about scale here? Is Kubernetes really? more appropriate at a certain scale, or can ECS operate at similar scale in um, large-scale large terms? I don't think there's a significant difference, to be really honest. I just Got don't it. know the answer to that. I have no idea. <laughs> I've seen enormous ECS deployments and I've seen really tiny EKS deployments. So it's like, meh. you know, it's 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 sort of neither here nor there. The only 
I don't know, nice thing that that EKS has, and it's more Kubernetes than EKS, is things like Helm and ways of doing things that are a lot more out of the box that ECS doesn't really have. Because with, say, a Helm chart, you can just say, give me this pre-rolled thing in my cluster, please, and it'll do it. But So... You're going. You're going. We're going to vote on this ECS or EKS, John. I think it's clear where you're. You're. You're lying here. ECS all the way. Alan, how about yourself? If you're going to deploy some yeah. containers tomorrow, can I choose the option three and just say lambda? <laughs> <laughs> so, well said by the serverless hero there. So, uh, <laughs> on that note, let's move on to the next article. Uh, let's move away from uh, container orchestration uh, into um, Code Whisperer. Um, so this article is from the AWS DevOps blog and is entitled Looking Beyond Code Coverage with Amazon Code Whisperer. So I did attempt to read this one myself. Um, I don't really understand a lot about coverage and testing and so on and so forth. So uh, I think probably better for you guys to explain. Um, so, uh, John, let's start with you on this one. Um, yeah, sure. So, I mean, pick this one out because you can't go a week without talking about ai so we have to talk about ai um it's it's an interesting one because they start talking about edge cases and things like that and i don't know if we discussed it or not on the pod before but one of the things i did in in a past life was i was a software tester so you know throw all your stones at me because i'm evil but um i've tested things for a living and edge cases are always great fun it's the age-old joke of um you know, a man walks into a bar, orders a beer. A, a QA engineer walks into a bar, orders a llama, orders minus one beers, and so on and so on and so on. <laughs> it's the, it's the, it's it's making sure that you've got data that might not be realistic, but that exercises it in in weird kind of ways. And that's what this is talking about. Because code coverage is, as it says in the article, a measure of how much of your code is covered by tests. And they give a, a really very basic, um, I think it's just a mathematic, a mathematic operation of, has every line of this been covered? Yes, but only with one test case because it's using very basic data. And then they ask Code Whisperer to come up with a bunch of other cases that exercise it in different ways. And whilst the coverage doesn't improve because everything's still fully covered, you get a much better result because it's exercising these weird edge cases. So that's kind of what this is talking about. Uh, for me, I I do not like code coverage at all. <laughs> just, like just in, in general, because to me, it, it just, it generally promotes unhealthy development behaviors. Because if you set benchmarks, if you say across the board, across our company, we're going to shoot for 80% code coverage for all of our unit tests, all of our code, then developers are going to start, like they're going to start cutting corners to make those numbers rise up to hit the to hit the benchmarks and they're going to be doing things just to hit that instead of really genuinely focusing on on code quality this is one of the i actually had a a big argument uh, at a prior job about code coverage because they were trying to do that exact same thing and this was the argument that i had was don't don't do that you can use it and you can see you know are we being effective in general like i don't want to see 20 percent code coverage uh but don't mandate it as a metric in like your CI pipelines. It's not a that's not a good goal to have because it promotes bad bad behaviors. Uh, I also have an opinion on this article in general. <laughs> uh, using AI, AI for this to me, this actually feels backwards. I did a blog post in the middle of uh, last year, twenty twenty three, that talked about using AI in the exact opposite way. 
uh, of what this blog post is talking about. And this blog post is talking about write your code and then use Code Whisperer to help you get edge cases and generate tests from said code. And I did an experiment last year uh, with the opposite, where instead of writing the code, I wrote a ton of unit tests that covered everything that I could think of, all the edge cases, all the business requirements. And then I asked AI to write the code that satisfied those requests. And what I would do is I'd, I'd pass it to ChatGPT, said, hey, do this. It would give me some code. I would run the unit tests against it. And then if any of them failed, I'd give it right back. Said, hey, this failed. Rewrite the code. And just do that in a loop until you know my billing cuts me off. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> what, what's interesting, though, like about doing it the way that the blog post says is that you might get uh, unit tests that validate a bug in the code. And that's what I don't like about using AI for unit tests. It's an interesting one. It is, because the Code Whisperer, one of the dev advocates at AWS, I forget who now, was kind of espousing Code Whisperer as a way of generating large amounts of test data. So maybe not the test itself, but lots of different versions of test data if you needed to put lots of data through. Um, so yeah, it's uh, this article is very 100 level because the thing it's trying to test is very, very basic. Um, and they've written the first unit test and they've gone, using this to make these criteria give me lots of different versions of test data. So I, I can see there's a, a kind of a middle ground there, but yeah, you're not wrong. Alan, I'm curious, did you win that argument that you had? Uh, no. <laughs> oh. <laughs> You're still taking the it's, same standpoint, right? <laughs> I do. I absolutely do. I mean, the, the reason I didn't win, uh, just to be blunt, it's a lot easier to use code coverage as, as a metric. It's a lot easier to do that in, instead mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, instead of anything else to show code quality. I've had that exact same argument and it was financial services are awful for it. And it ended up being a stick to beat people with it's the code coverage has gone down. That's not going out the door. Yes. But all I did in this file was add some outputs so that you could see what it was doing. I'll just go and remove the outputs. Then the coverage has gone back up. What we do. Okay. And the other thing code, I wanted code to mention coverage is does that, not mean code quality. The other thing I wanted to mention, Alan, about what you said was uh, you, you obviously did that, uh, scenario described in chat gpt um other aws generative ai tools are now available <laughs> yeah <clears throat> yes. don't ask amazon found, q yeah I, have you tried any of those have you have you tried oh, to, yeah. to use any of them? yeah yeah i have i have i've used uh claude I, i've used several versions of claude i used uh llama 2 and i've i just keep coming back to open ai i just find it significantly more capable or I will be willing to admit that I just don't know how to prompt these other models the right way. I definitely know how to prompt OpenAI. I cannot yeah. figure it out uh, on the other ones. Prompt engineering is something we spoke about on last week's episode. So mm. uh, yeah, very important to uh, craft those prompts in the right way for the model, like you say. So um, mm -hmm. yeah, but yeah, interesting to hear that you're uh, you're more of a fan of OpenAI than the, than the AWS tools. But I guess they were ahead, so uh, you know. AWS are playing catch up and uh, be interested to see how people like yourself may, you know, which way you're going to lean in the future uh, as these tools continue to develop. So I, John, I'm further, sorry. I think I might've cut you off as well. Sorry, fine. Alan. 
No, that's okay. I do use uh, I do use Bedrock to create all of my embeddings. I will always <laughs> do that <laughs> if that counts for anything. And John, I think I'll cut you off as well. Did you have something something else to add on this one? Nah, no, nah, good. No, cool. Okay, let's uh, skip on then to the next article for this week. Uh, with this one's from the AWS Storage blog, um, and uh, it's about something we've definitely spoken about on the podcast before because it's very relevant uh, in our world of managed services. Uh, and this one is all about how to automate the delivery of AWS backup audit manager reports via email. Um, so uh, backup audits are something we are regularly doing um, on behalf of our customers. Um, so anything that can help to automate that uh, has got to be good. So uh, is it good, John, uh, or not? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I picked this one because I, I picked this because much like one last week or the week before, this is something that I'm actually working on at the minute and I need an excuse to talk about it because, you know, it's it's the more I can spend with this on company money, the better. Because um, this is something so, I'm working on. So has my newsletter given you a solution to a problem yet again? I'd, it kind of. <laughs> it kind of. You know, <laughs> I still have to build a load of stuff, but it's given me the idea of, oh, yeah, that'll solve that problem. Told you what to build. So there you go. Yeah, it's great. Isn't that your job? <laughs> Telling you what to build. Well, I suppose it is, yeah. <laughs> uh, the short version with this, um, it's quite a nice little solution. Um, within AWS Backup, you can have compliance with your plans and your policies and what have you. And you can centralize that as well through um, a delegated administrator if you're using organizations, which you should be. Just I'm not going to go into that now because we don't have time, but you should be using them and you should have delegated admins and you should have org-wide plans and that kind of thing. You should be doing all of that. Once you get that set up properly, you can then audit the backups um, across your entire estate from one place. This is brilliant. This is great because you're not having to log into dozens to hundreds of accounts potentially if you're looking at like a large corporate deployment uh, to validate that your databases are being backed up properly using AWS backup and that your servers are doing being backed up and so on and so on and so on and the other upshot of using AWS backup rather than the various native sort of snapshotting and backup tools is that it's all in one place which is great which is what you want you want everything to be centralized everything to be easy to review um, and it's just kind of there brilliant it will spit reports out for your compliance, which is brilliant. Um, but in a world where you're inundated with things to do and everyone's really very busy, I want this data to land in my inbox so I can just worry about it if I need to. I don't want to have to go and look for it. Yes, okay, maybe that makes the noise a bit noisier, but if you filter it properly, it's very useful. So that's kind of what this is talking about. They've done, again, all of the legwork here. So I'm just going to pick this up and I'm going to implement it. Done. Excellent. Nice. Anything to add on this one, Alan? Yeah, I like the build. We, uh, I don't know how often you guys talk about like the specific build that it that it goes off of, but it's it's a really nice event-driven workflow because mm -hmm. these reports get generated and they get dropped in S3. And really, the whole workflow here that it's connecting for you is triggering off the object added event in S3, piping that over EventBridge, which is then invoking a Lambda function. And that Lambda function is responsible for sending that email. Super simple with such a, a powerful, impactful result. And one of the things that, I don't know, I don't know if we kind of differ in opinion on this one, John, uh, is I I don't love emails like this. <laughs> like, uh, not not on success, because what, what I end up getting every time, and when I say every time, I mean like pretty much literally every time, if I'm getting recurring emails from some automated process, 
I will get fatigue on that email and I will just stop looking at them. So if I'm getting them on success and failure events, chances are I'm likely going to miss a failure event because I've just generally stopped reading. So that would really be my, uh, my modification to this process. If you can parse that result and there's a, a failure or something that, that happened that shouldn't have, send that email then. I know you said you can filter the email and stuff, but I'm just not. Yeah, so alert fatigue is something that I'm very hot on. I've been in the SRE space for half a dozen years, and it's you're, you're not wrong. If you just get too much, it just goes, oh, that's that's that's. it says it's failed, but it always does that. I'll, I'll just ignore it. <laughs> um, where that becomes less the case, I guess, is where you have to report to, say, an external client that these things are happening. So you've got, I don't know, a dozen, a hundred, a thousand clients. This should be filtered down to the relevant people that are compiling that data for the clients that then go and consume. That's kind of the, the logic behind that. But yes, on a day-to-day, I'm managing my own world. Only tell me if it's broken. Don't tell me if it's working. Yep. I think that's the, to me, that was like the big part that was missing out of that article was that specific use case. Send it out to your uh, compliance people as, mm-hmm. as a result of that. Nice. Do you prefer mediums other than email or is it just uh, more concise emails, more filtered emails? Is there any other way you would like to receive it? It depends on the durability. Like uh, a package report, like it's actually sending me a a file and email, definitely email. But if it's something that I need to act on right now or in short order, maybe it's some on-call thing, Hit me up in Slack because I'm going to respond to that much, much quicker than I will in email or phone. Yeah. Yep. Fair enough. Anything to add there, John? Or shall we move on? No, we, we can move on to complain about something else. Okay. Uh, so our next article for this week uh, is uh, from our friends over at InfoQ. And this is about AWS uh, shutting down Aurora Serverless V1, their sole relational database with... Oh, I, can't, I haven't got my teeth in properly. Their sole relational database with scaling capacity to zero. Um, so uh, I know that you're both uh, big on the world of serverless, of what it is and what it isn't. Um, so I'm sure this is going to spark an interesting debate um, about. Uh, um, so uh, what are your thoughts on this one, Alan? Well, and when I first read it, I was like, oh, <laughs> crap, it's it's gone. But they're doing their due diligence and it's actually getting shut down at the very end of 2024, like the last day of 2024. So we have time to react and do our migration strategies and, and whatnot. It's not like you missed the window. It's we're at the very beginning. The window has just now opened. Uh, so that was a relief when I, when I read that piece, uh, I've never actually used Aurora serverless and, uh, <laughs> for you know a handful of reasons and everybody always talks about how it's not actually serverless and then you know that's <laughs> there's a whole debate on that uh, on what is and what is it serverless and i was actually unaware that serverless v1 did scale down to zero that was news to me when i read this article just because i am unfamiliar with the with didn't but i don't know a whole lot of the the differences between one and two yeah, so, I mean, from my perspective, I just wanted to bitch about the fact that they're getting rid of the only actually serverless relational database um, because I have fairly strong views on on what is and isn't serverless. And if you have to pay for it to exist, it's not because it's not. 
you know, you pay for a server to exist. You're paying for a resource to exist. It's running on a server. You're paying for a server, fundamentally. Dress it up how you like. Um, it's not serverless, like a NAT gateway. It's not serverless. You pay for it to exist. It's managed. Sorry, but it just is. Um, I've never really used Aurora serverless either because one, it's kind of expensive one way or another. And two, the scenarios that I've come across where a database scaling to zero is useful have been covered by turning it off. So just turn it off, um, you know, unless you need it to be off for weeks and weeks and weeks at a time, in which case, why are you using an expensive database for this? There's probably a better way of storing this data. Hmm. Um, I mean, key differences, though, aside from that, between the two of them, is mostly around the multi-AZ piece at this point, as I understand it. Um, V2 came out, V1 existed for a while, V1 arguably had better uh, features than V2, and V2 has sort of finally gotten to the point where it's a viable replacement. I think the last thing was the data HTTP endpoint that came out fairly recently. Um, but it's, yeah, it's the... It's the multi-AZ thing, which, again, if you're having to worry about multi-AZ, it's not serverless. I don't care what AZs my lambdas are in. They just run. I don't care where Dynamo is. It, it just is. It... Yeah, it handles that cross-AZ replication for you automatically. It yeah. generally serverless managed services. I'm actually really surprised to hear, honestly, that a service is getting sunsetted it. At AWS, that's not something that you like ever hear about. Like Simple DB is still a thing. Uh, the Simple <laughs> Workflow service is still a thing when they have step functions in it. You know the Cadillac that it is today. Uh, so I'm I'm surprised, and I I actually want to know the motivation behind shutting it down. The article didn't really talk about that. Uh, so I'm I'm curious to hear. I'm gonna dig. I'm gonna try to dig and find out like what's going on. What? <laughs> why? <laughs> Why? And it makes you wonder, is like, are other services now going to get shut down because of this one? I don't know if this is the first one that's ever been shut down, but uh, maybe it is. And maybe it's now it opens not, but no? you can, okay. I can count the number of services I'm aware of that have been killed on one hand. It's not a big yeah. number. And VPC Classic, or EC2 Classic, being the obvious one, um, but that took like a decade to get rid of. Um, there was the low-code platform that AWS ran for a couple of years, and they killed that because it was rubbish and nobody used it. Um, but that's about it, I think. I, I can't think of any others off the top of my head. EC2 Classic is obviously the, the big one, but you couldn't spin up anything new in that for a good couple of years before they finally told everybody to get off of it. So, Well, I'm curious to hear the uh, outcome of your digging, Alan, uh, if you do manage to find out... Any reasons behind the uh, the canning of this service? Um, yeah, let us know. Maybe we can talk about it in a future episode. Yeah. So um, let's move on to the final article that we had to discuss this week. Um, and this one is from the AWS database blog about detecting PII, personal identifiable, uh, identifiable information, in Amazon Aurora with Amazon Comprehend. Um, so uh, this is a way to detect personal identifiable information uh, without necessarily having access to the database as i understand it um so uh, any thoughts on this one guys who'd like to go first i can i can go first uh yeah, go for i it. think this is i think this is really cool because i have built a system like this before uh, i used to work on an evidence management system 
And one of the things that I built early on was the detection of PII and documents that were uploaded as evidence. Uh, and one of the things that I very, very quickly backtracked out of was automatically doing it because recognition is expensive. And uh, that, like specifically the, the PII service that it has or the PII API that it has. Uh, so like I had originally built it where everything that goes into the system uh, gets run through for PII analysis and then you know report back. Like one of the things that I really wanted to make sure that that we do and one of the things that they do in the blog post is don't automatically redact this information because it could be wrong, right? It is an AI service. It's not a human that's going through. So what that's that's one of the design decisions I like in this blog post is if it finds PII in the Aurora Rose, it I think it publishes to an SNS topic so somebody can go in and react to that. And uh, you know, I, I like that, but it's again, it's really expensive. Like if this is a high write operation, then you're gonna run that bill up. And it's just one of the trade-offs that you have to take into consideration when designing something like this is is it worth catching all of these things, maybe uh, for you know data protection. It depends on your compliance requirements, really, because mm -hmm. PII is is toxic waste. It's awful. You don't want to hold it if you don't need to. Realistically, it's it's a horrible thing to have to worry about. But the problem is, almost anything. If you read the GDPR, if you're dull like I am, because I had to read it once. Um, <laughs> if you read it, there's so much that's actually personally identifiable, or is if you add a couple of things to it. The obvious one being email, because people don't think an email is PII, but it is because one person owns it. And then if you can tie that email to another record in your system that's got their name, then all of a sudden, oh, no, we know who this person is. So it becomes very complicated and very difficult to deal with, especially when you need reasonable data sets for non-production environments. And then the ICO can start, um, sorry, the Information Commissioner's Office in the UK, I'm sure others exist in other um, domains, um, can start getting really annoyed at you if you're not doing things properly, especially if it's PII of minors, because then there's even more things you have to, even more hoops you have to jump through. So it's, as you say, it's a trade-off because it's not cheap, but if you need to worry about it, you just need to spend the money. Is it cheaper than the fine, I suppose, is what you have to ask yourself? <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, or yeah. what is the risk of getting yeah. a fine? Yeah. That is, that's the hard question. That, that yeah, probably worth the price. Probably, because yeah. it's not just the yeah. fine at the end of the day. Because then you also likely have news that comes out on your company that says you leaked PII, and then there goes the trust as well, which yep. is going to be a lot more money than the fine. Reputational damage absolutely worth probably a lot more than the fine itself. So uh, yeah. Anyway, on that note, uh, we are at the end of our time uh, for season three, episode three of Logicast. So uh, if you're still listening, thank you for listening. And uh, John, uh, thank you as always for your insights. Alan, it's been great to have you on as a guest. Thank you very much for joining us and sharing your your insights. Um, that uh, brings us to the end of season three, episode three. Um, as as you're aware, uh, we can you can download the podcast on all available podcast platforms. And if you'd like to look at our faces listening to us, uh, we're also available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you again with another episode next week. Cheers. Goodbye. <laughs>